I want to paint a picture for you, and you can find this setting in Luke chapter 8, and that's going to be our text for this message, Luke chapter 8, and here's the setting. It's an outdoor setting. Jesus is around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, if you were to ask me what is the favorite place you've ever visited in your Bible lands travels, I would have to put the Sea of Galilee right near the top of the list because uh, no man has ever been able to uh, sully it in the sense that uh, some of the sites that have uh, been authentic sites have been uh, kind of messed up by the things that men do to try to gaudy them up and they lose some of their natural beauty, but not the Sea of Galilee. And I'm so grateful that uh, years ago in 2009, I had my first taste of Bible lands travel with Brother Tony Lawrence leading the group. And then I was privileged to go with him again to Jerusalem and to see the Sea of Galilee for the first time with him and a number of others that are here in this room. And I've always cherished any biblical text that would remind me of these things that I've been privileged to see. The Bible tells him in verse number four that when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. And he said, a sower went out to sow his seed. And so we've seen the setting. It's this outdoor setting in which it's not impossible that while Jesus was there speaking to the crowds gathered, that they could see in their peripheral vision individuals actually doing the very thing that Jesus is describing here. Picture a sower going out to sow seed in his field. What's interesting about this is the importance of a sower and the seed and how they have to both be present. Because picture this, a sower takes an empty bag and he goes out into his field and he reaches down into the empty bag and then what? broadcasts nothing into the soil, what is that going to produce? It's going to produce absolutely nothing. Let me sit a bag of seed right here on this pulpit, and if it sits here for five years and no one ever moves it, tell me when it's going to ever produce what it's capable of producing. It's just going to sit here in a container, and that's going to be what it continues to do. The sower must go out. In fact, all of the biblical accounts of this, Matthew's account in Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4, and here in Luke 8, depict the sower going out. There was a movie some years ago uh, that, that had this phrase in it. I'm sure you'll identify with it if you saw the movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. And the concept behind it was, if you'll just build this uh, baseball field, then they will come and Sometimes I think we have this mentality that if we just build a church building, they will come. They'll start coming in out of the community in droves. They, they may or may not come, and I do not know exactly all the reasons why someone may or may not come into a church building, but I can promise you this. Though I'm not a fisherman by any stretch of the imagination, I am wise enough to know that I can't just get a boat, go out into the water, sit with my arms folded and wait for the action. Not in this part anyway. That's not going to work. I've got to take something and put it on the hook and I've got to cast it out. I've got to be casting forth the bait. Now the seed of the kingdom is the word of God according to Luke 8 and verse 11 and we've got to cast it into the hearts, the soils of men 
around us. Now Jesus says in verse 5 of Luke 8, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and that kind of dirt was all hard and packed down, and the fowls of the air could just come and pick those bits of seed right off the bare dirt and devour it. It never did sink into the soil. Verse 6, now some of it fell upon rock. Now, think about a bedrock with a thin layer of topsoil on top. And the seed can actually sink down into that thin layer of topsoil. And it starts to bring forth a, a crop almost immediately. But the Bible says as soon as it sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And it can't sink its its roots any deeper because the bedrock is stopping it from going any deeper into the soil. So it just dies. And then there's verse number 7. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And Mark's account is very interesting as it relates to this. In Mark chapter 4, I want you to notice this with me, if you will, because this is really a very descriptive of the world and time in which we live. In Mark chapter 4, look at the statement that is made there in verse number 18. These are they which are sown among thorns. He says, they hear the word. But then what? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts, the desires of other things entering in choke that word, it becomes unfruitful. Some years ago I was going back home from Christian camp in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was taking a couple of young people back to Murfreesboro, and as we were on the journey, I just happened to notice we had a van full of people and a van full of devices that were running at the same time. I'm listening to a Major League Baseball game on the satellite radio station. My wife has her laptop opened and she is composing a Ladies' Day presentation while listening to some of her favorite songs. And then in the back we've got a boy on, going to town on a Nintendo Game Boy, just wearing it out. Sitting next to him, a portable DVD player with a, an approved movie in the slot and two teenagers watching this movie. Another teenager on their phone, talking, texting, mostly texting, 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 and listening, someone else listening to their iPod and the music that was their favorite music. And I thought, there's enough DC current going through this van to blow it up right now. But I also thought something else. As far as I know, there wasn't anything going on in that van that was inherently sinful. No one doing anything that was in and of itself sinful. But then I got thinking about this. What if we do things that are not in and of themselves sinful, but we do them so much that they crowd out the spiritual development of things that matter more? And that is exactly how Satan can get some of us by just distracting us with the lusts of the flesh, the things of, of this world, even things that are not inherently wrong. We don't need to be distracted from those things. And then go back to Luke chapter 8 and notice the good happy news. Other fell on good ground. And you mean there is such a thing? Now, how many of you have ever had this experience? You've tried to invite folks to services, and there's just not any interest whatsoever. Others, you invite to services, they come, 
They might even attend for a time or two, but then they seem to quickly lose interest and they're not coming back. Then there's that person that you've invited, perhaps, who comes, who listens, who learns, who embraces, who obeys, and who keeps on coming for a while and then falls away. And then there's that person who, according to Luke chapter 8 and verse 8, this good ground heart springs up, bear fruit. Jesus explains all of this. In verse 11, he says, now the seed, that's the word of God. And tell me how indispensable, I could put this Bible right here and leave it there for five years if no one moved it. And in five years, if that Bible's just sitting here with all of its life-giving properties embedded within it, if it just sits here on this pulpit for five years, you tell me how many souls are going to be converted by the truth that's in this book right here in five years if it just sits here. My friends, though, what if I go out and I'm sowing things, but they're not really the Word of God. I'm sowing, you need to try this. We're a church that's known for this gimmick or that gadget or this. I actually know of a church in a Midwestern state some years ago that determined they were going to try to have an attendance drive. And they said the way we're going to get our biggest crowd ever, they talked to a worldwide wrestling federation fella in coming to their services that morning. And announced it on the poster. So and so of the WWF is going to be here for services on this Sunday. Tell your friends, bring them all. And I'm thinking to myself as I see this advertised, Jesus didn't say in John chapter 12, and if you find a WWF character and you can bring him to services, you will draw all men unto me. He said, And I, if I be lifted up, shall draw all men unto me. You tell me where the power is to draw men to Christ. It's in the gospel of Christ. It's in the cross of Christ. It's in the blood of Christ. And that is where our focus needs to be. That's the seed we need to be sowing into the hearts of men and women. Is the soil going to receive it? I don't know. A young lady told my wife and told me some years ago, she said, I have quit even trying to get anyone to respond to my invitations to services because no one ever seems to say yes. I want you to consider something. My dad, who's also a gospel preacher, calls Luke chapter 8 the personal worker's parable. Why does he call it that? Because he said, look at the encouragement that you and I are given. It might appear to be discouraging at first because of the four soils that are depicted here. Watch the reaction. We see the seed, but we also see the soils. The hard ground soil, verse 12, the devil comes and takes the way, the word out of their hearts. They don't ever even respond to it in a way of being saved. And then there's the rocky ground soil, verse 13. They hear it. At first they receive the word with joy, but they don't have any root. For a while they believe, but then in time of trial they fall away. He knocked on my door during the worst rainstorm that I've ever been in, and that includes the one I drove through yesterday to get here. It was years ago, and I heard a banging at the door. 
And I went out and opened the door, and there he was, drenched. But I could still see the tears that were coming down his cheeks and separate them from the raindrops that were dripping from his hair. I called him into my office. I'd seen him earlier that afternoon. In fact, I'd baptized him earlier that afternoon. And that in and of itself was an interesting thing because he'd walked into my office that late morning and he said, I want you to give me 10 minutes of your time uninterrupted and I'm going to prove to you that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. 10 minutes uninterrupted. I said, okay, I'll make that deal with you. If you'll then, when you're finished, give me 10 uninterrupted minutes to, to respond. I'll do it, yes. So I said, okay, feel free to, to show me what you want to show me. He said, okay, now I want you to see John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's not a word about baptism in John 3.16. And so you know that it's not necessary or else it would have been mentioned in that verse. And then he said, I want to show you Romans 5.1. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, doesn't say justified by baptism. It says justified by faith. And so there's proof you don't have to be baptized to be justified or else he would have mentioned that. And he said also in Acts 16 when the jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know what the answer was? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. They didn't tell him that he had to be baptized. And so he actually finished earlier than the 10 minutes. And I said, okay, those are all very important texts that you've mentioned. I said, let's take the first one. In John three sixteen. it's true that... That particular verse doesn't say anything about water baptism. I said, first, I'd like to ask you something. Do you think a man must repent of his sins in order to be saved? And guess what he said? Yep. I said, I couldn't agree with you more. Can you find the word repentance for me in John 3.16? Well, no, the word repentance is not in John 3.16, but... But it's in implied because if you really believe in him as you ought to believe in him, you'd be willing to repent. And I said, that is such a good answer. And that same kind of thing that you just said, if you really believe in him, you'd be willing to repent. If you really believe in him, you'd be willing to repent and. And what Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I said, I want to show you something else, though, very quickly. There in John 3, verse 16, go just a few verses earlier. Jesus has already introduced something into this chapter that we shouldn't eliminate after Jesus already put it in there. And I showed him John 3, 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And I said, Jesus put water in, verse 5, is he taking it out in verse 16 or is it included in what it means to truly believe in him in verse 16? Since he's already introduced it in verse 5, it must be included or else he'd be contradicting himself. Is he taking it back in verse 16? And as far as the jailer in Acts 16, when he was told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your house and you'll be saved, did you... Notice the next verse, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord. 
And the next verse says, The same hour of the night he washed their stripes and was baptized. So I said, here's what I'd like to show you. Isaiah chapter 2 makes a prediction. The word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. According to Isaiah 2, 3, the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. What was the word of the Lord in Jerusalem in Acts 2? And they said, what shall we do? They asked the same question that the jailer asked. They said, what shall we do? Now the reason that they weren't told to believe is... And the jailer was, they had not yet, they had already believed and the jailer had not yet believed. They had already now believed Jesus as the Christ or they wouldn't have cared what to do. They wouldn't have wanted to know what to do. And so they said, what shall we do? And they were told to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. The jailer, after he was told to believe, then what? Heard the word of the, the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. What was it in Jerusalem? Repent and be baptized. It went forth to Philippi, and the jailer heard it, and he starts washing their stripes. What's that? Repentance. And he was baptized the same hour of the night. What's that? Baptism. Repent and be baptized. He did what the word of the Lord said to do in Acts 2. He was told to do that, and it's not until he did that that he was said to have rejoiced with all his house. And in Romans 5.1, Paul said, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said, We have access by grace. It's the grace of God that saves us, but when? When, when? Paul in Romans 6 is the same author that wrote Romans 5. He's not Jekyll and Hyde. He's not saying one thing in chapter 5 and taking it back in chapter 6. What does Paul, who says, wait a minute, he says, therefore being justified by faith, we. He puts himself in the category. We have peace with God. When did Saul of Tarsus have peace? Did Saul of Tarsus have peace the moment he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus? No. He says, Lord, he was trembling. What, what will you have me to do? Acts 9, 6, arise, go into the city, and there, now I'm not telling you here, but there it shall be told thee what thou must do. Whatever Saul is told to do in the city, he must do it. Well, what is he doing in the meantime while he's waiting for a preacher? Acts 9, 11, Ananias is approached by God, and God says, I want you to go preach to a man, and he's praying. That's a very significant factor. He's praying. So you're looking for a praying man. He gets to the praying man in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Saul is remembering this. He says, he said, arise, get up, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's when Saul had peace. And so if you don't have peace until you're justified by faith... And Saul didn't have peace until he was baptized. Baptism must be a part of what it is to be justified by faith. Because his trust was in the blood of Christ, not in the water. And just like Naaman had peace of mind when it comes to no longer being a leper, after he dipped the appropriate times in the appropriate place, that's when he had peace. When Saul was dipped as a penitent confessing believer, he was raised and walked in newness of life. I finished. And Larry said, I would like to be baptized. 
said, now I want to make sure because when you came in here, you said you were going to take 10 minutes to prove to me that I didn't have to be, that no one has to be. And now you're saying that you want to be. Are you really sure that you really want to be? I want to make sure you're doing this for all the right reasons. He said, I, I just didn't know what you've shown me. That's true. He said, I just didn't know. So I baptized him about 2.30 in the afternoon. That's him beating on the door 5 o'clock so that afternoon in the middle of a rainstorm. And he's crying. And I said, Larry, what's wrong? He said, I went home to show my family what you showed me from the Bible. And they made it clear to me that if this is what I was going to believe, I would no longer be welcome at my house. And I said, that's a hard thing to hear, I know. I can promise you, you'll have a family here and maybe they will actually relent and maybe they will see that, that you know, what they're saying right now is, is an overreaction to what, you're, what you've done. You're only doing what you see the Bible plainly telling you to do. Friends, I'd like to stand here and tell you that I saw Larry again. I didn't. I've always hoped in my mind as the years have gone by that maybe after he got out on his own, away from home, that he was willing to stand up and to stand for what he saw. But I know that my Bible tells me some folks who start out well end up lost because they don't stay faithful. And I'm here this week every bit as much for the unfaithful as I am for those who've never professed Christ. As I close out this particular message, I want you to notice something here in Luke chapter 8. After he describes the, the thorny ground soil as those who are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, verse 14, and they don't ever bring any fruit to perfection, here's the good news. The good ground... They're honest. They see what they see and they're willing to accept it even if it's different from what they've heard in the past because they realize that's the Word of God. We just came back from a restoration tour with our students at the Memphis School of Preaching and the, some of the sites we visited in Cane Ridge, Kentucky and Bethany, Virginia or West Virginia now, some of those men that were involved are sometimes falsely claimed to be the originators of the church you and I are members of. I can stand here confidently and tell you that if Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell had never lived, Acts 2.38 would still be in the Bible, right? And Romans 16.16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you, would still be in the Bible even if those men had never lived. And in fact, there was a church started on Pentecost. To whom did it belong? Did it not belong to Christ? Yes. Well, if the church in Acts 2 belonged to Christ, wasn't that the church of Jesus Christ? Yes, but it was not a denomination among denominations. It was just the church of Jesus Christ. Not one known by that name. It was just the actual church of Jesus Christ. And my friends, they were honest enough on that day to realize, hey, we need to make a change. What do we do? Repent and be baptized, and about 3,000 did. Friends, you may be here this week. You may hear something that maybe is different than what you've heard in the past. 
I don't want you to believe me. I want you to take out your Bible and search the Scriptures like the noble Bereans and see if what you're hearing is so. If it's not, reject it. If it is true, embrace it and obey it. We want you to be saved. The Bible says in verse number 15, those who hear the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with endurance are going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. We'd love to see you obey the gospel. I'll close with this. There was a seed principle given in Genesis 1.11. It is that every seed produces after its own kind. And my cousin Kim years ago was bragging to me and all of my family members of how she had just planted recently the most juiciest watermelons that men would ever eat. And when pumpkins emerged from the ground, <laughs> you've never seen such a broken hearted little girl. But I sincerely believed in my heart that, friends, I want to ask you something. When it comes to sincerely believing that you're planting one thing, the nature of the seed really is the issue, isn't it? And when this book was preached in Acts 2, did it produce a multiplicity of denominations all calling themselves by different names and worshiping in different ways and organizing themselves in different ways? Is that what this produced when it was first preached? No. And it doesn't have to produce that in 2019 either. If we'll just speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent, call Bible things in Bible, Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways, Speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11, and you will speak the same thing, 1 Corinthians 1.10. It is our goal to see you receive this seed. What kind of soil do you have this morning? Is your soil receptive or is it hard and packed down and rejecting the truth of this seed? Let this seed sink into your soil of your heart. And I promise you, if you accept it with an honest and good heart and obey it, you will be blessed forever. Won't you do what you need to do as together we stand and sing?